This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. John and Trey for that worship already this morning. We appreciate that very much. Uh, well, good morning. What a joy it is to be with you here uh, today. Uh, just an administrative note, I highly encourage you to get the notes. Uh, you can get those for the today's message off of the Hui Kala app if you have that on your phone. Uh, it's under the series titled Fear Less. So there's a document that allows you to fill in the notes as you go along, uh, and you'll see that on the slides this morning as well as all the verses that I'm going to be referencing will also be on there. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, uh, we were last here, my family and I, 2017, my wife Juliana and my six children. Uh, we were here for two years, and then we were stationed in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. We were there for three years, and then uh, it was time for us to make a decision whether we are going to stick around the Marine Corps or whether we are going to get out and do something else. Um, so, quick story. Uh, typically, when you get to that point in your uh, move cycle, you have to sit down in the Navy, they call them detailers, in the Marine Corps, you call them monitors. You sit down with that individual and uh, usually start a conversation. The conversation usually starts out, so where are you interested in going? What do you think you'd like to be doing next? And by the end of the conversation, the, the monitor will say, well, that's all very interesting, but I have this place that's not even on your list. That how would you like to go there? Uh, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. And when I was sitting down with my monitor, who actually I knew for a number of years, uh, he said, so what are you interested in doing? Where would you like to go? And I said, well, we'd like to go back to Hawaii. We think that'd be really cool. It'd be nice. He's like, oh, that's really interesting. Have you ever considered 29 Palms? And I said, uh, well, for those that aren't familiar, 29 Palms is uh, a small town in the Mojave Desert. And we've known people that live there, and, and they love it. And uh, you know, I was just thinking, I don't know if that's where I want to end my time in the Marine Corps. Uh, and a, but you don't want to be dismissive outright because somebody's got to go there. So you just kind of play it cool and say, well, you know, I haven't really talked to my wife about that. We haven't really considered that yet, so I'm not so sure. And uh, we had a good conversation. It turned out that he uh, ended up writing me orders to Hawaii uh, about a month and a half later, so he was very gracious to me in that regard, and I appreciated that. Now, of course, returning to a tropical paradise is very appealing, of course. My kids, uh, they don't know what cold weather is. They've lived in tropical climates all their lives, so this was just another step that they figured they would be enjoying. Uh, but that certainly contributed to the decision, but the real driving force was this church, who we call it Baptist Church, to be honest with you. And of all the churches I've attended, uh, it is the most well-rounded. And what do I mean by well-rounded? Uh, there are certain things that I assess a church by, and those things, five areas for me personally. One is doctrine. Does it preach sound doctrine? Two is evangelism. Do they go out and try to reach the community? Three is discipleship. Once somebody is saved, do they try to raise that person up and educate them in the ways of the Lord? Four, church discipline. Some people overlook that, but that's very important. It's important to keep the body uh, the way the body should be. And then lastly is fellowship. And I think that most people would, would agree that uh, whether you agree with anything else about who you call it, it's hard to walk out of here and say that is not the friendliest church I've ever been to because of the fellowship associated with it. So for us, who we call it hit all those wickets. But in addition... Uh, just knowing that the pastor and his family have such a love for Christ 
you can't replace that with anything. Uh, the pastor, uh, for those that know him, certainly, for those that may not, uh, he is completely submissive and obedient to the authority of God. And you can't ask for anything more than that from, from your pastor. Uh, this is really a privilege, truly a privilege, and I appreciate Pastor uh, entrusting me with this opportunity. Uh, I recognize this is a big deal to, uh, to allow, allow an individual to speak from the pulpit, and, and I certainly want to respect Pastor King. Uh, I want to instill confidence and not have him regret his decision, uh, but more importantly, at the same time, it's even more significant that this message bring honor to the Lord. He must be glorified today. Uh, at our previous church in South Carolina, our senior pastor, uh, he would preach some pretty lengthy messages. Uh, hour and 10 minutes was kind of the average. And uh, my wife and I taught a third grade class afterwards, and we were frequently late. Like, we would rush to the, get to the class, and we just couldn't get there on time. So anytime I walked in and I saw an elder or associate pastor preaching, I thought, oh, yeah, we're going to make it to our class on time. I think we're going to get out early. So if you walked in today thinking that, you're probably right. Uh, but today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6, if you want to turn there. And as you do, uh, the theme for the sermons for the past few weeks has been to fear less. And so today we're going to look at the life of Daniel uh, as an individual who did not fear. He did not cave to the pressures of man or difficult situations, but rather demonstrated in the midst of adversity his faithfulness. And let me briefly uh, identify two underlying principles throughout this passage today. A sovereign God and a servant's faith. Both of these topics offer plenty of material for multiple sermons. Uh, I merely want to just uh, define one of them here. What does it mean that God is sovereign? Quite simply, he is the ultimate authority. He answers to no one. And the title is appropriate as he, as he has total control over everything. He is the creator. Another way of putting it very simplistically is God can do anything, and everything he does is right. He is perfect. There is no chance, nothing happens arbitrarily, and nothing escapes his view. We have no assurance of if we have trust in a limited God. He must be almighty, and clearly the Bible states that he is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 states, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things, and worthy of our admiration and worship. Revelation 4.11 states, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We will see God's sovereignty throughout this message today. Now we also have a personal responsibility to be men and women of faith. As God's ways are beyond human, human comprehension, we must trust him. We must trust him. Fully trusting that God is sovereign, we recognize that we are unable to comprehend his ways. Events will occur in our lives that may be inexplicable from our perspective. Trials, difficulties, and the unknown will present plenty of opportunities for us to question, for us to fear, for us to doubt. But that is when we must remain most faithful and fully trusting in his ways. It's extremely important to read this passage within that context today. So I'll read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Please follow along in God's word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, 
that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then, these, then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing that it not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save O thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Now, before we get into the passage, let's understand a little bit about Daniel and his background. He's a Jewish exile, captured by the Babylonians when they invaded Israel. Uh, we are told that the king sought young men from these exiles to serve in his court. Uh, the king's charge was to find the best and the brightest. The intent was no doubt to indoctrinate these men into the Babylonian culture and then use them. So Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, distinguished themselves and stood out against all others. And Daniel further made a name for himself by interpreting dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar II through God's providential hand. And this really thrusted him into a distinct category of servants for the king. And King Nebuchadnezzar could find no one his equal. Daniel was special in the king's eyes. Daniel goes on to serve in a position of high honor for Nebuchadnezzar until he relinquishes the throne. So we see at the conclusion of chapter 5, verse 31, that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Not knowing exactly how old Daniel was when he was captured, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, that he was a youth. Now that can span a range of ages, but let's just assume he was 14 years old. Uh, if you look at the historical timeline from the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and his successors to Cyrus, it equals about 70 years. So while there is discussion about the exact age of Daniel, What's really important to understand is that he's not a young man anymore. He's closer to in his 80s. So he's lived a full life, and remarkably, he's remained very relevant and influential within the government. So that's a pretty impressive career that spanned numerous decades. Uh, and it lays the foundation for understanding a little bit behind the man that we're looking at today, and more importantly, the God that Daniel serves. And let, let's not lose sight of the fact that we don't elevate the individual, but we worship sovereign God. 
So the preceding chapter gives us much greater in insight into Daniel, but I'd really like to focus on this chapter because I believe it's a culmination of his life. So let's look first at the, ver at the first verse. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. So most biblical historians would submit that Darius was not the specific name of the king, but it was rather a title assumed by the king or leader of this area, or another name for Cyrus of Persia. So those are two prevailing thoughts. Of course, his name is not as important as to understand that he was the man in charge. He had the great authority, and he had the authority to yield who was going to be in charge by the occupation of the Persians and Medes. So he had many men serve under him uh, to handle the administration and the operations of his kingdom. And these men are listed as princes. This can also be read as governors. Again, men who are responsible for collecting money, maintaining order, managing the area. So we see here 120, which means that we're talking about a pretty large area. This is not a, not a small area that we're talking about. And we read in verse 2 that these princes or governors would then be accountable to three presidents who worked directly for the king. Verse 2, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. So we have this vast region divided in such a way that we have 120 men to manage it. And then we have three men personally selected by the king. And it's interesting to consider the criteria for the king's selection. We read that the king picked the men who are going to look out for his best interest. It says, so the king would have no damage. So it's fair to say that maybe some of these princes may have not been completely honest. Maybe they decided to keep back some of the money that was due to the king. Maybe they were uh, a little less than forthcoming with information to the king. So the king needed three men to ensure that he would keep those 120 in line. So they had a great deal of autonomy, these three presidents, and it was important for the king to be completely comfortable with their decision-making. So they are the elite within the hierarchy, subordinate only to the king. And what we should find fascinating is that Daniel is one of these elites. We come to expect that leaders assuming new positions tend to bring in their own people, right? If you're a new coach for a team, if you're a new president, if you're a new prime minister, typically you're going to bring in people that you've trusted. They've served you well over the years, they're loyal, and they're going to be the ones that you put in those positions. So consider how unusual it is that now this new king has brought in a Jewish exile to be so high within his government. A very loose comparison might be if President Biden had decided to maintain uh, former Vice President Pence as his vice president. Now, former Vice President Pence is a really nice guy. Some would say he has utmost integrity, and I would agree. But he did just serve four years under the Trump administration, and that would probably not be the best relationship. But here we see a guy who just served under the Babylonian Empire for 70 years, almost seven decades, and yet now he is in a position of authority within this new empire. And it really is remarkable when you consider that. And through no doing of Daniel, it was God's work. Daniel rose to the occasion to the, within the Babylonian Empire as well as the Persian Empire, the same way in which Joseph rose to his position in Egypt as second in command, only by God's divine appointment. Ephesians 1, verse 11 states, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God's will be done. And just as Daniel, as Daniel did, you need to allow God to place you where he needs you to serve. And that's my first point. God places you where he needs you to serve. 
when I was in high school, I was, uh, I was dead set on being an accountant. I liked math. I liked bookkeeping. I was thinking, I'm going to graduate high school. I'm going to go to a college. I'm going to become an accountant. I'm going to live in Philadelphia. That was my plan. Now, granted, I had never met an accountant in my life. I'd never spoken to an accountant. Never really researched what an accountant does. And then when I found out, when I got to college, what accountants do, I said, yeah, that's not for me. I'm not, not interested in that. Uh, and I had never really considered the military. Uh, my dad presented it to me. My dad served four years in the Navy. He said, hey, you should really consider joining the military. And uh, he said, y y actually, you should go to ROTC. You know, they'll pay for your college. And uh, I think it'll be a good experience. Now, I think he had ulterior motives uh, when he looked at some of the schools that I was considering for cost-wise. Uh, I think he was expecting me to get an ROTC scholarship so he wouldn't have to pay anything. Uh, but I competed for that scholarship, and uh, it was in Connecticut. And there was, uh, there was one other guy and myself, actually. And I don't want to give the impression that it was really close or I can't believe he beat me out because he had some sort of nepotism going on. I was not qualified. He was way more qualified than I was. So I did not get the ROTC ROTC scholarship. However, uh, I did become enamored with the Marine Corps, and I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Maybe this is something I'll pursue. And so it was, and I started looking in that direction. Now, if you'd known me back then, I was a very shy, introverted kid. I could barely lift my own body weight. Uh, Pull-ups were not something I ever did. Uh, so I was not Marine Corps officer material in the least. Uh, but I decided to pursue it anyway. Well, so I in high school, I was a pretty straight-laced kid. I didn't get into any trouble. I uh, didn't party. Uh, I went to high school in Connecticut, and my goal really was just to get good grades so I could go to college. That was my, my desire. Uh, I graduated high school in Connecticut and decided to attend a small university in uh, Pennsylvania called Bucknell University, about 3,000 in the student body, and uh, it was actually the perfect size for me, but even still, it's not home, right? And so you're going to college and experience a lot of new things. Uh, it was a very big party school. Uh, my first semester freshman year, I was like, okay, I, I gotta buckle down and do some grades. And I, was a, I did very well in, in high school, not so much in college. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that, but you just kind of expect to get to college and I'm like, yeah, it'd be a piece of cake. Yeah, it was not. Uh, so I, I did my first semester, I did okay. And then second semester freshman year, uh, they had this thing called a fraternity. I was like, oh, a fraternity, that sounds cool. Uh, fraternities and sororities were very big on my campus. Almost half the population of the students were involved in a fraternity or sorority. So I said, yeah, let me try this. And so I rushed a fraternity, Lambda Chi Alpha, and I got in. And uh, I said, wow, this is really neat. I, I entered this new world of party life. And I started partying very hard uh, that second semester. And my grades reflected. And, uh, and I tanked my second semester freshman year. And when I say tanked, I mean, I mean, tanked. Uh, I distinctly remember studying for a, uh, my finals in accounting the night before at three in the morning, laying on my bed with, with note cards. And, uh, it, was, it did not go well. I did not pass that exam. Uh, but, but that was kind of my focus. My focus was on partying. I went to Officer Cannon School that summer and uh, barely made it through uh, Marine Corps Officer Cannon School first semester, first increment. And then I went back to college for my second semester. And I remember my academic, academic advisor pulling me into his office and said, hey, uh, your grades are really bad and you're on, uh, you're on academic probation and if you continue, you're gonna lose your scholarship. I was on academ academic scholarship at the time and I thought, well, that's not good because I can't afford this school so I better figure out a way to get my grades back up. Well, this time I moved into the fraternity. So uh, <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't help, but, 
uh, I said, well, you know, I'll buckle down. I'll get my grades down. I'll get my grades back up. So sophomore year, first semester, moved in the fraternity, got my grades reasonably stable. However, uh, this particular fraternity, uh, this is back when MTV was big, for those that remember MTV. We were the dance fraternity, so we had a party every weekend. And uh, I was a part of it, and I enjoyed it, at least in the flesh, while I was going through it. Second semester, sophomore year, more of the same, just kind of doing the same party thing. Then there were two guys in my fraternity who decided to invite me to a Bible study. It was myself and another guy they invited. And I'd gone to church all my life, to be honest with you, but I'd never heard the word exposed in the manner that they presented it to me. And over the next three months, uh, I learned a ton. I was in my bedroom, uh, in my dorm room in my fraternity. Uh, it was five in the morning. Uh, I'd been up all night on Mountain Dew and No-Dose. If you don't know what No-Dose is, you're better off for it. They're not good for you. Uh, but I was trying to get a statistics paper done uh, for an eight o'clock class. It was about five in the morning. I had papers literally strewn all over my floor trying to put this project together. And I just sat there and I prayed and I cried for about 45 minutes and I said, man, my life is garbage. My life is a mess. I have no idea what's going on right now. And uh, because those men shared with me, I understood that I needed salvation. I needed to be saved. And God rescued me from the pit that I was in. And, uh, and I, I was transformed right there. The very next week, uh, I was with my, my buddies down the hall. And as was typical, we celebrated finals being over. I was having beer with them. After my third beer, no kidding, I said, man, this just doesn't feel right. I just don't feel right doing this. I didn't know how to explain it at the time, but it was the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and no kidding, from that point forward, with the, the rare exception, I never drank again. And that's a big deal in fraternity because that's all we do uh, on the weekends is drink. Uh, but what was interesting is it really provided a platform uh, for me to witness to those guys that knew me before I'd become a Christian. And, uh, and some of the biggest party animals in that fraternity went on to be saved. And it was really an amazing thing to see how God did that. Because it wasn't through me, because there were the other guys in my fraternity who were Christians also. But it was just amazing to see how those two, those two men, their faithfulness, allowed that to happen. But it was all God's providence. Providence, and I can see that throughout my life. Following my conversion, uh, there was a strong campus group of Christians that really helped me. They embraced me and brought me along, educated me, taught me, and, uh, and strengthened me enough so that when I got to the Marine Corps, I was prepared, to be honest with you, because the Marine Corps will throw plenty of challenges at you. They'll uh, throw plenty of temptation your way. And uh, I can say that I've seen God's hand move exactly where he needed to be in the military. And the only reason I'm still in the Marine Corps it's because that's where God wants me to be. And that's kind of the same way I would say when you look at Daniel. Uh, he was exactly where God wanted him to be because he was being obedient. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with, thine, with mine eye. Just realize he doesn't save you to wander. He doesn't save you so that you have no purpose. God has a purpose for every Christian, and he wants to use you in that way. And we have to recognize that God clearly had a purpose for Daniel by allowing him to maintain this position. Let's move on to verse 3. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to send him over the whole realm. Daniel stood out immediately to the king. He was different than the other princes for certain, but he was even different than the other presidents. The Bible said he was preferred, or he distinguished himself. How did he do that? Bible says because of an excellent spirit. What does an excellent spirit look like? Do we possess that excellent spirit 
that we distinguish ourselves from others? Was he confident? Was he charismatic? I would submit that he was living a fruit of the spirit filled life and that's how he distinguished himself. And when we do that, people can't help but see the difference in our lives. So what happens next? The king considers making Daniel the supreme ruler of the kingdom, only second to him. Isn't that remarkable? How did Daniel make such a valuable impression on the king that he was ready to put him in total control? I mean, it's not as if the king was able to check with his Daniel's uh, successor and say, hey, before I kill you, what do you think of this Daniel guy? Do you think you, you recommend him for a position in my government? And I'm sure the princes weren't in favor of Daniel. I mean, here's this Jewish exile. They certainly didn't want him in charge of anything. Um, but the only way it could have happened is through God's providence. Daniel's reputation was well established, and God's providence positioned, positioned him exactly where he needed to be. Daniel faithfully served God, not man, as must we. Now, have you ever considered whether Daniel actually wanted to serve these Gentile kings? I mean, don't you think Daniel could have retired at this point? He's been in government for a long time. He's in his 80s. He's had a very successful, lengthy career. Maybe it's just time to call it quits. We must believe that Ga uh, Daniel sought God's will for his own life, and that simply did not include typical retirement. And again, we saw this with Joseph in the book of Genesis. Here is this committed Jew who is still able to serve a secular king and maintain his commitment to God. And make no mistake about Daniel's allegiance, even after decades of separation from his people, from his culture, from his temple, he was still completely devoted to God and his faith. Daniel understood that service to leaders on this earth is secondary to service of God in heaven. God would not want Daniel to compromise, and he must not have, because God would not have allowed him to maintain that position if it meant compromise of his faith. What we recognize is God, that God needs strong, committed believers serving in all kinds of positions in the regular presence of non-believers. Our influence will certainly be reduced if we simply opt out for the comfortable opportunities alongside of other Christians. And as followers of God, we should demonstrate respect for those in authority over us, regardless of their spiritual condition. You may have a boss or a teacher who doesn't like you simply because of your faith, but the last thing you want to do is reinforce that negative thought by demonstrating anything short of Christ-like behavior. You must show them respect and honor. So if you're a regular contender for disgruntled employee of the month or disgruntled student of the month, you might want to reconsider your approach. A Christian employee living out the fruit of the spirit will be highly sought after regardless of religious background because employers want hard workers with great attitudes, which describe Daniel, and which is what we should be expecting of believers. My second point, serve, honor, and submit to God. Be subject to man, man's authority. I mean, it seems straightforward enough. Daniel never really lost his perspective on who he was serving, but do we sometimes lose our perspective? Like him, we must fully understand that our role is for God's glory. We are to perform in such a manner that others would esteem us well because of our work ethic and our drive to excel. Not excel for a promotion or accolades, but excel to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 states, Whether you eat or drink or work long hours for a boss who is demanding, condescending, and ungrateful, do all to the glory of God. Now, it doesn't really say that. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But if you're put in that position, God requires you to focus on him. When we have that perspective, we become the best employee, the best student, and the best teacher. And Daniel understood that his purpose 
was to be committed to God above all, and at the same time, honor the king. Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Serve God. Serve him before all others. We also see a similar response from Peter. Listen to this personal testimony of truth after being arrested for preaching about Jesus in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Here we see a conflict and a decision that had to be made. The disciples had been ordered by the council to cease and desist any preaching of Jesus Christ. But fully recognizing the consequences that they were going to be facing, they knew for sure it was more important to honor God than obey man. So Daniel is now on the short list to lead the kingdom. The other leaders, of course, more deserving in their own mind, began looking for political scandal. How can they get this Daniel out of this position? Look at verse 4. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. They try to find an occasion when Daniel may have disparaged the king or acted in a disloyal manner. And you would think after 60 to 70 years in government or politics that they'd be able to find something against him. Surely he was involved in a shady dealing maybe somewhere or some sort of impropriety. Nope, they couldn't find anything. They could find no error or fault. No evidence of corruption nor negligence. He was completely clean, without doubt, with undoubtedly frustrated, which out, undoubtedly frustrated those men. They needed some means to discredit Daniel. Now, for clarification, so we don't lose perspective, we're not saying that Daniel was sinless by any stretch, but we are saying that when it comes to his position in the government, he was above reproach. So, they tried, but they didn't find any objectionable tweets. They didn't find any embezzlement. They didn't find any scandal with the king's concubines. He was clean. Verse 5. And to me, this is the pivotal verse in the whole passage. And it really is such a great verse. And may it be said of each one of us. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So they draw this conclusion after an exhaustive effort. So while they failed to find any wrongdoing in his position as government official, they determined to attack his faith. They would find an accusation regarding the law of his God. So this is interesting and very telling. Again, they know Daniel. They're very familiar with him. They understand his background. They understand what it means if he gets into a position of authority. They also understand that God, Daniel's commitment to the Lord is very clear to them. We can't find anything to pin on this guy, so let's figure out a way to use his own faithfulness to God against him. I would submit that there are other devout men and women throughout history who would fall into the same category. Men and women who frustrated the efforts of their enemies and attempts to silence them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been with a 
team member or someone uh, within your occupation, a self-seeker, someone who's trying to get to be number one, and they'll do whatever it takes. They'll pursue that ambition at the expense of others. So whether it be through gossip, ridicule, maybe sabotage, they'll do it. And think about it. Do we concern ourselves with those who are not a factor, who we don't consider a threat to our own progression? Certainly not. You focus on those who can threaten your purpose and your directions and your goals. We are a game-playing family in my house. If you come to our house, uh, more than likely you will be offered uh, some at some point, we're going to play a game. Uh, and if you look at our closet, you'll see games from ceiling to floor. Uh, lots of games in there. Some we haven't opened or played because, uh, to be honest with you, the, the adults in the house have veto authority. So there's some games in there we just won't play again because, uh, personally, I, I don't really care for them. One of those games is called Apples to Apples. It's a horrible game. I don't know who invented it. Uh, I liked it initially, but now not so much anymore. And so anytime the kids recommend that, I say, yeah, we're not playing that. But we will play Ticket to Ride, which is a fun game. And uh, you can play with five people. We have, we have uh, more than that in our family, so we just kind of take the oldest. And when we play that, uh, I think it's important for you as a parent to indoctrinate your kids into understanding winning and losing. So there is no, you know, there's no mercy when it comes to playing. I don't care how old you are. We're gonna, I'm going to beat you if I can. And so when I play... Uh, you know, the other kids that play, I'm like, oh, that's good. They're having fun, having a good time over there. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm not really concerned about you, but I am concerned about my wife and my oldest son because I know that they could threaten my victory. So <laughs> I make sure I focus on doing whatever it takes to defeat them. And uh, you see, we just, we don't focus on things that are inconsequential. We focus on those people that threaten us. Uh, you see, if Daniel had been inconsequential, these officials would not have gone through such great lengths to try to seek him, uh, seek him out and accuse him. They had fervor to do that because they thre he threatened them. My mother taught me a phrase growing up. It's a Spanish phrase, and it says, cero a la izquierda, which means a zero to the left. Uh, specifically, when you talk about a mathematical equation, if you put a zero in front of any number, it doesn't change the value. Uh, so it's not a complementary term, it's a derogatory term. And it means that if you say, Somebody's a zero to the left, it means that they don't matter. They're insignificant. They have no influence. This was not Daniel. He mattered and they knew it. He was about to be designated authority over them as second only to the king. So this was no doubt incomprehensible, again, considering his previous origin as a Jewish exile. And so they needed to do something about it, and so they turned to his faithfulness. Now imagine if this could be said of you. My third point. We must be willing to live a life worthy of opposition. We must be willing to live a life worthy of opposition. Satan does not attack those who do not threaten his purposes. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your personal testimony. He wants to undermine our pastor. He wants to undermine this church. And he'll do whatever he wants, whatever he needs to, to discredit us in that regard. He does not care about the zeros to the left. Consider the persecution of Paul, how he suffered. Why did he suffer so significantly? If you would, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 4. We'll read verses 4 to 7, because it's just such an amazing passage to me when we understand the life of Paul and his ministry. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 4 to 7. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took upon them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of this city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason, Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Did you catch that? These that have turned the world upside down. The greatest missionary to ever live turned the world upside down because of his faithfulness to serving God. God used him. Consider yourself. Do people look to you and consider your faith as inconsequential? Or instead, do they look at you and do they resent your testimony and they resent your relationship with the Father? May it be said of us that we are living rightly with an excellent spirit and let the biggest problem that people can find with us is with our commitment to Christ. Flipping back to Daniel, we'll summarize verses 6 through 9. We find in verses 6 through 9 that these princes and presidents persuade Darius to create a statute uh, that prohibits the worship of anyone other than the king. The penalty for the violation of the statute is to be thrown into the lion's den. So this is specifically targeted Daniel, obviously. He was certainly not in this particular conference that they had. He was not part of the decision-making. And I want you to notice the time frame associated with this statute. It's not a permanent law. It's only 30 days. Why only 30 days? Because these men knew, based on what they had seen, that Daniel would violate this law within inside of 30 days. They didn't need to make it any longer than that. Now we come to verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So language in verse 10 is really telling because it states that Daniel knew that the document was signed, even though he might not have been part of the original decision-making, and he certainly knew the consequences associated with it. And maybe somebody told him, maybe the king mentioned it, maybe he found out through word of mouth, uh, but he knew. And he understood full well the parameters. But look what happens at the conclusion of verse 10. He continued as he had been doing previously. What do we learn here? That Daniel didn't change a thing. Now, Daniel could have gone one of three ways, in my opinion. He could have gone over the top. Could have been over, he could have been overt in his faithfulness and his commitment to God by being brash and a disobedient, disloyal servant to the Gentile king. I think that's not in line with his character, though. I don't think that's how we read Daniel throughout the book, and I don't think it would have been uh, something that he would have done. Daniel also could have laid low. I mean, it's only 30 days. He could have he maybe shut the blinds and maybe dropped down to once a day, maybe tucked away so people couldn't see him. But Daniel didn't take either one of those paths. Instead, he prays and gives thanks with the windows open toward Jerusalem, just like he'd always done. He faithfully turns to God. He does not seek to be disobedient to the king. Make no mistake. He seeks to be obedient to God. Returning to our previous question, whom shall we serve, man or God? 
So why did Daniel do this? I think God would understand if he had just shut the windows. It wouldn't be too big a deal, right? Hey, just once a day, God, so they don't see me. But here's what Daniel understood, and the point that many Christians miss, and all Christians need to understand. Compromise is detrimental. Satan wants you to compromise. He will do whatever is necessary to bring your testimony into question. And do you think these men would have stopped coming after Daniel? They wouldn't have stopped until they got what they wanted. More and more in society, we can see a slow erosion of religious liberty giving way to secular humanism. We see compromise in the church. We see compromise in corporations. And if we aren't careful, we'll see it in our own lives. Growing up, I attended United Methodist Church. Again, nobody in my family was a Christian at the time, but my dad was very devout in making sure we went. He dragged us to church. It was a small Methodist church, and he had an office within it. So he made sure we were there. And uh, I didn't mind it much. I mean, it was an elderly uh, congregation, and I enjoyed it. I was actually in the bell choir, little known fact about me. Uh, but uh, there was a time I remember uh, being in that church and hearing that we got new hymnals. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and these are beautifully bound new hymnals that they got. They were released in 1989. And uh, I remember being told that some of the pronouns in there had changed. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And sure enough, I would look at some of the songs and some of the hymns, some of the hymns and the refrains, and they had changed he and him to gender neutral, referencing God. And I don't remember uh, what I thought. I don't know if I remembered what a shame or how strange. But, uh, and I don't remember exactly when it occurred, if I was a new Christian or not even a Christian at the time. But the fact that they felt the need to make God gender neutral was really interesting. And after a little research, uh, that was just one of the major revisions within the, the new hymnal. There were others. Uh, but the point is that what was happening in 1989, it probably didn't seem like a big deal. Uh, it might have flown under the radar for a lot of people. Just a change to the hymnal, some pronouns here and there. Fast forward to January 2020. The United Methodist Church was facing a legitimate proposal supported by almost half of its church leaders to support LB LGBTQ ministers in marriage, something that is clearly opposed in their own book of discipline of the United Methodist Church. This is their governing document and the product of almost 200 years of general conferences of the denominations that now form the United Methodist Church. And it was most recently published in 2016. So did it start with the hymnal change? No, it didn't. If you go back and look at the history of the Methodist Church, it started before that. But it was a crack in the door. Just a crack in the door. And it wandered from the path of biblical truth to cater to societal pressures in the name of modern progressive movement. And I'll tell you, one can find countless other examples in Christian universities, Christian organizations, and if we're not careful in our own lives. Listen, we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we can't be apologetic for our faith. Too many people feel the need to apologize for their faith for statements or actions that they make because of their beliefs, because they're afraid of the scrutiny, because they're afraid of the criticism. They bow to the pressures. How many times have we seen a Christian actor or athlete or author go back on what they had said 
because somebody had criticized them, because they're afraid of the way it'll impact their sales or their brand or what people might think about them. We should not be apologizing for our faith. We should not be apologizing for biblically defined marriage. We should not be apologizing for the preservation of life. And we should not be apologizing for Jesus, our Savior. I'll tell you, you're going to be attacked. If you're vocal about your faith in Christ, it's going to happen. If you defend biblical truth, it's going to happen. Jesus reminds us of that. The question is, how will we respond? Now let me show you what happens when a genuine Christian in a relationship with God compromises. You have now abandoned your convictions. You have turned from your one true love because of the pressures of this world. Peter did the same and how he must have wept as soon as he realized the sin he committed. But guess what? It doesn't stop there. That pull by man away from the Lord will grow even stronger. stronger, Because now there's an acknowledgement. You've now stated, I don't firmly believe what I said because I'm willing to compromise a little bit. And so now they look at you and say, well, maybe he'll compromise more. Maybe she'll compromise more because they don't really believe what they said they believed. You've cracked that door and you used, that used to be shut solid and you allowed Satan to get in and open, open it further. And just know, Satan will not be content on that, until that door is flung wide open. We all know how sin creeps into our lives very slowly. For some, it starts with a look, then a thought, then a comment, and then, and then, and then. Christians must not be so naive to think that the smallest of compromises is acceptable. Your liberties will ever slowly disappear, and you'll be standing there wondering, how did I get so far away from God? And the answer is, one step at a time. When you abandon your convictions, you place yourself in the middle. You don't wholly embrace what your enemies may say. You don't wholly embrace the contrary opinion. But at the same time, you've demonstrated, I'm not completely committed to my foundation either. And the Bible has a phrase for that. It's called lukewarm. Consider this. Say I was going to stand on this bench, and that would represent my Christian testimony. And I asked Anton to come up here. And I'm sure some of you would like to see that. And I'd break my leg and the pastor would be like, what in the world happened? How did you break your leg preaching a sermon? So I asked Anton to come up here and I say, hey, Anton, I'm going to pull you up on this bench. Now, if Anton doesn't want to get on that bench, he's probably not coming on that bench. He could probably just sit on the floor and I'll try real hard. But I'm not strong enough and I don't have the right leverage to get him on that bench. But guess what? If Anton wants to pull me off that bench, I bet he could. I bet he could pull me down pretty easily. And even if he can't, even if I'm able to resist him, maybe I get Trey up there with him. So Anton and Trey are now pulling me down. And guess what? I can't resist that. I'm going to fall. And that's exactly what Satan wants to have happen. He wants your testimony to be destroyed. He wants you to get pulled down off of that bench. And just be aware, you can't stand on that bench on your own. There's no way. Our goal is to stand on a bench to demonstrate our testimony and our faith and to pull people up on it. But guess what? You're not strong enough to do it. The only way you can do it is through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you'll pull anybody up on that bench. That's the only way that you'll stand strong in your testimony. That's the only way you stand strong in your faith is when you're relying upon the Holy Spirit. 
we have to be in the center of God's will, and every Christian should strive to be there so that you can face adversity because it's going to come your way, and we must be willing to stand, and the only way we can do that is the way that Daniel did, by kneeling in prayer. My fourth point, have courage and do not compromise. Have courage, do not compromise. We've got plenty of people out there compromising. Do not bow to the pressures regardless of the consequences. The stakes are extremely high, and Daniel understood that full well. He knew because he didn't change anything, and he was willing to accept the penalty. I want you to turn over to Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, just a few pages to the left. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, and we visit back with three men that I had mentioned earlier. 16 states, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king of, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Here we see those three Jewish exiled young men facing imminent death. And what's the response? God will deliver us. He's able, if he wants. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't rescue us, and we die and we're consumed in that fiery furnace, that would not be enough for us to abandon our faith in him and turn to your idol. Psalm 1821 states, For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. What does it say when we compromise our convictions? It says we want to be comfortable. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to endure. We're willing to concede to external pressures so that life will be easier. Is that the path that God has called you to follow? Not according to the word. There's a reason that we read in Matthew chapter 7, chapter 7 verses 13 to 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the great and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many thereby, many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If we are living the Christian life right, we will always be in the minority. We will always stand out as different. And we will be mocked, and we may be ridiculed, and we may be challenged, and we should come to expect that. Some may speculate that life in this country is getting harder for Christians, and I would tend to agree. A Christian truly walking the walk will have a hard time blending into society. Among other challenges, there is absolutely a moral and sexual revolution tidal wave that's coming, and you better hold on because it's going to get harder to stand. Look at some of the most controversial issues of our country and the slow progression away from honoring God or even acknowledging his existence. Every day we have to make a decision whether we're going to stand. So don't compromise. Take courage. Finally, we seek God's purpose for Daniel. We see God's purpose for Daniel. He is thrown into the lion's dens for a night. The next morning, the king finds him unscathed. He is removed from the den and his accusers and his family take, their pl take his place for their own demise. Interestingly enough, just as with Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius honors Jehovah God because of Daniel's demonstration of faith. 
Although I'm certain that Daniel did not volunteer or desire to be in the lion's den, God needed him to endure for a purpose. He used Daniel, his faithful servant, as an instrument of his will to be done. And what do we see happen in verses 25 to 27? The king's mind is changed. Verse 26 says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He proclaimed the power and authority of Jehovah God. Oh, by the way, we see a similar decree by Nebuchadnezzar following Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaping. Here are two pagan kings acknowledging the authority of God. God is sovereign. He can do anything, and everything he does is right. He makes no mistakes. He does not stumble. And let us not think for an instant that God has ever removed his hand from the life of you, Christian. If you're a born-again believer, you are his child. And just as a parent cares for his or her child, God cares for us so much more. More than we can fully understand. And what we sometimes fail to grasp is that while we are here on this earth for this purpose, we want to be comfortable. We, we want to be easy. But we have to understand that our reward is not here. We are living for Christ and we're living for an eternal purpose. Because we will be blessed when we die in eternity worshiping him forever. That is our purpose. My fifth and final point, your purpose is to fulfill God's will. When Julian and I got married, we decided to have our favorite verses inscribed in the inside of our wedding band. Inside of her wedding band was, is my favorite verse at the time, James 1.12, and inside of mine is Romans 8.28. That's her favorite verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It's a great verse, but sometimes it's misapplied. Understand that the verse does not state that all things work together for my good. What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what if they had perished in the furnace? What if Daniel had not made it out of the lion's den? Would God have been any less glorified? Would this still be a lesson about God's sovereignty? Absolutely. Because it isn't about the outcome that we expect or that we desire. It's about his will being done. And we should want nothing more out of life than to serve God without compromise and allow his sovereign hand to use us for his eternal purpose. For me, back in college, when I was a foolish 19-year-old, there were two men, Jay Miller and Chris Rainey, who took the time to share with me Christ and helped me to understand that my life had no purpose and had no meaning. And they showed me answers to release myself from the sins in my life for eternity. And because of their willingness to do that, I was transformed forever. I was changed. If you've never experienced that, if you are living in a pit, if you're confused, if you do not know a Savior, if you do not have an understanding of sovereign God, I ask that you turn to him today. Recognize that your life can be changed forever and that his will will be done in your life and he has a purpose for you. I pray that for you today.
Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.